this is Bob Tufts, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. What's up? Welcome to another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo on the place where we catch up with all of the current and former Royals players and, and see how they're doing, hear the stories and, and, and the memories that you can't find on baseball reference or fan graphs or on the back of a baseball card. That's what makes Clubhouse Conversation special. And one thing I do love in particular about doing this and these interviews is, is finding out what you know former Royals players are up to these days. And Some remain in baseball and some do things completely unrelated to baseball. Bob Tufts has kind of done both. Bob Tufts pitched for the Royals back during the 1982 and 1983 seasons. A big, tall lefty, 6'5", had a mark of 2-0 for KC in 16 appearances after being drafted and coming up to the big leagues with the San Francisco Giants. KC got him in the infamous Vita Blue trade, which, of course, would later on cause some issues for all parties involved. But Bob Tufts has gone on and, and gotten some amazing degrees and has worked on Wall Street and is teaching now baseball courses and, and doing different uh, you know research in, in papers and all that good stuff on different topics related to baseball. So he's kind of combined both the unrelated and the related when it comes to the beautiful game of baseball. And he joins us now on Clubhouse Conversation. Bob Tufts, how's everything going out there You know, on the East Coast? Doing very well. I basically... Wish October would combine with November here, and we could keep this uh, this wonderful baseball showing it's far superior to football in all forms, college or otherwise, in motion. Oh, I love that. That's that's a great summarization there. Yeah, it's it's going to be a cold winter without it, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it makes me think. You know, I know back in the days the Royals do the uh, little treks and the uh, cold weather through Missouri and Kansas. So this year, hopefully, they're a little uh, at least mentally warmer. The good old Royals caravans, yeah, yeah. Well, we have a ton to talk about, but before we even talk about baseball or your awesome post-baseball career, you've done a lot of really cool things, I do also want to ask uh, how you're doing health-wise because many know, not everyone knows, but you were diagnosed with multiple myeloma back in 2009. Now, I know you had some treatment with medicines before undergoing a stem cell transplant in October of 2009. So knock on wood, you've had no reoccurrence of cancer in the last four years, but, but how are you feeling right now and how are you doing? I'm doing 100%. I still take a maintenance dose of uh, pill-based chemo as a preventative measure, part of a new study that came out in 2010 that I got put on by my doctor. Uh, he scared me two weeks ago when I went for my monthly visit. I got a monthly white blood transfusion because the medication kills some of the white bloods in my system. And he said, we have to talk about the C word. And I said, you postponed me and you want to talk C? Is cancer back? He went, no. You're as close to a cure as anyone is for this disease, so uh, be confident, be strong. So I am very elated, and there's very little limits I have on anything I can do now, which is fantastic. That is so great. So that was like an experimental thing, wasn't it, that you went underwent before, the, the STEM thing? It wasn't experimental. It's just with medications, and part of the reason I'm involved with a uh, not-for-profit online called My Life is Worth It is that transformative 
medication is great and wonderful, but it's usually a continuous innovation process. The drug that I take was evolved from thalidomide, which, if anyone with long memories know, caused horrid birth defects in the U.K. Uh, however, the drug in and of itself was investigated and found to have amazing uses and uh, off-label uses for cancer treatment. And I was put on this drug along with uh, dexamethasone, a corticosteroid, and it basically saved me in 2009 when I could have been dead within a few months. Yeah, because I've read a lot of articles about that since, you know, reading that you had it. It's a, it's a scary thing. So congratulations, by the way, and uh, and keep up that fight. Now, talk about some of the amazing doctors in your life, then, and, and what was the process of undergoing that transplant like? It is, um, once they stabilized the cancer, I knew I wasn't going to die. It was a five-month process to get my M proteins, nasty levels in my blood system, down. And then I do a scavenger hunt, an EKG, an EEG, a bone density survey, dental work, you name it. And I was going to the hospital every other day for something. Then I had to inject myself with Neupogen, which got the stem cells in my bones out into my bloodstream. So that was a week of that. Then I had to uh, go on a centrifuge where they put a tube in me, a central line, and they took all the blood out of my body three full cycles to harvest the stem cells. So I sat in a chair for eight hours doing that. Then I took one chemo. Then when I went to the hospital, I took my second chemo. And this is, hey, everything's great and wonderful. This is easy. Uh, they said, uh, you know what's going to happen next. And I said, yeah, I do. Um, the melphalan causes to blistering the entire alimentary canal. You run 104-degree fever. They can only give you fluids and basically extra-strength Tylenol to keep your fever from going to ridiculous levels. And that's a successful transplant, which is why it's difficult for people who are older to survive this. I spent four and a half weeks in an isolation room. People had to clean themselves before they came in since I had no immune system. But within 10 days, the fever stopped. Well, they, only 102, not 104. My white blood and red blood counts came up back slightly. And I was able to go home on my birthday in 2009. And I've had zero effects ever since. Man, what a champ! But man, talk, talk about you. And I'm, and I'm sure you thought in a previous, you know, part of your life that going six innings was a challenge, right? <laughs> I was like throwing two or three in relief, please. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's amazing what's been done, and um, I don't know. Part of it, I I got myself through it because 2009, I watched all the uh, World Series games and the playoff games. A few sports reporters, Ken Davidoff in New York, and um, Mike Vaccaro had a book on the 1912 World Series. Uh, I kept myself busy with that and just focused on the job at hand. Every day, get my numbers, are they good or bad, and move on. So I got my computer printouts, my money ball for myeloma, shall we say, yeah. and, uh, and dealt with it. Up, down, whatever, I don't care. I just have to know how I feel today. Now, one more question about that, kind of a deep question. But, you know, they all say that stuff like that kind of changes somebody. It makes them appreciate each day more and more. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that's definitely true with you? Actually, no, not really, because at the time, my daughter was a freshman in college, Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. My mother-in-law was having a colon cancer operation, and... It was more of my wife having to go back and forth between all three prospects and do stuff, and I see what it does to families externally. And such just a pressure and strain on every part of your life. I, I basically say I never want to go through that again, but if I have to, I will. 
the focus on me, you know, I changed careers and went into teaching. So it's basically getting out there and I like to be a minor bit of example for people, but I don't try to push it too much. Right. Right. Well, now before we get back to baseball, you mentioned the teaching and everything. Now you got a degree in economics from Princeton, an MBA in finance from Columbia, and then you have over 20 years of working on Wall Street as well. And then also you're a professor. But before we talk about the whole professor thing, tell us about you know what you've done on Wall Street and what that experience was like or has been like. Yeah, after I got out of Columbia, I worked for <laughs> numerous firms, which no longer exist, surprise. Worked for the first uh, 10 years in futures and foreign exchange sales and trading, mostly with um, European clientele, a few American accounts. I love the European clientele. They're far more civilized. Yeah. And then uh, changed and went on to the equity side and dealt with primarily uh, private banks out of uh, Europe who were wonderful to go visit in Geneva and have a great time with, needless to say. Um, was it fulfilling? You clean up your desk every day, shall we say? It's like relief. And like playing baseball, there's an end and close of the day. You know, I can't leave anything open. You know, the day is done. You know, numbers are there, and you deal with it. But it, shall we say, it's not exactly an intellectually fulfilling thing. Right. Well, kind of like talking into a microphone every day, right? <laughs> like I do. Well, you can express yourself. I mean, when you work on Wall Street, you're there. Your expression is basically limited to your computer, your printouts, what happened. So actually at that point, I did start to write and try to be a little expressive. I did not reach the poetry levels that Dan Quisenberry reached (laughs) at the end of his life. I I miss Dan. Um, But I, I tried to get more creative, which I think did lead into the writing and the teaching philosophy. Now, how about the movie Wolf of Wall Street? Did you like that one? Did you watch it? Don't watch it. My, my movies are basically sitting with my laptop in my lap and watching Turner Classic old movies. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Now, I mean, you teach at a few universities, including NYU. Talk about uh, you know that you know, what exactly you're doing, because you're researching some pretty cool topics. Um, my teaching at NYU is I teach entrepreneurship for the Tisch Institute in sports. And I also involved this term in two advanced research seminars. One is basically you know, kind of shortening it, money ball evaluation, not of players, but of general managers, club senior executives, and owners. Can you basically, is there a proper traditional management strategy that is applicable through baseball? The second one is, uh, day games after night games post-amphetamine ban in 2005. Has there been a noticeable drop-off? The students right now are still planning what they use, batting average, slugging average, or batting average on balls in play, but basically trying to see if there is anything, because far too many former players talk about leaded and unleaded coffee in the clubhouse mm-hmm. and how the game is slower on Sunday day after night games. So I decided to throw this at students. You know, crunch the numbers, go to Elias and fan graphs and baseball reference and see what you can come up with. There may be no answer, but it'll be fun to see. Now that is cool. I have never thought about that. That's, yeah, the, gr- the whole Greenies thing back in the day, right? The coffees? Yeah. yeah. And then the third thing is I'm developing a course which will be adult ed and hopefully go into the fall curriculum. Uh, Marvin Miller, 20th Century Trade Unionism and Development of the Major League Baseball Players Association. <sighs> So I've gone through all the documents. I've talked to numerous players from the time, still have more to deal with. And I've gone through the Marvin Miller files at NYU since he was an NYU economics grad. Uh, the families donated the files to the Tim and Labor Law Library. So I've spent, gone through 10 boxes of uh, items and gone through a bunch of 
really cool videos of him talking with Bill Veck for 30 minutes about oh. his history and things. So it's it's interesting and it's basically fun and being creative and in my case giving back a little since I played at the time. It went from Marvin Miller through the strike, through Ken Moffat coming in, through Don Fear showing up as the executive director. Wow, what what a cool career you're in now. That is neat. Uh, I wish you could get some of those classes online for us people here in KC. That that's great. We'll develop. We'll take this thing on the road at some point. There you go. I love it. Well, all right. Speaking of the road, let's go on the road back in time and start from the beginning. Are you ready? Go ahead. All right. Your brother Bill pitched on the Cubs minor league system in 1975. He roomed with future Royal Rich Gale. So first question, how's he doing these days? And I'm assuming that when you were growing up, he was probably a big influence on your development. My brother was a huge influence being four years older because when he was in high school, he and ex-brewer Billy Travers were the two all-state pitchers in Massachusetts. He got a scholarship to play at the University of Florida, but was not exactly enamored of the life down south and transferred to the University of New Hampshire, where he played with and roomed with Rich Gale. My first meeting of Rich was actually showing up at my brother's house off campus, knocking on the door, having this huge guy with red hair and a beard and a gun at the door. So I didn't know whether I had come into deliverance or it was really another just huge ball player friend of his, and it, w- it was Rich. He, like, survived that uh, the Hyatt the hotel thing here, didn't he, in Kansas City? He was working here like a, in a restaurant or something? He was working there and actually tried to help pull beams and things off people at the time, if my memory is correct. Yeah. And that was um, not exactly a classic moment. No, no, no. Now, okay, so on the JewishWeek.com website, I was reading an article <laughs> that said at the age of seven, you went to a game at Fenway Park with your dad. You saw a no-hitter. Tell, tell us about your memories of that night. Um, when... Earl Wilson threw a no-hitter for the Red Sox against the Angels and also had a home run that day. And I remember it really distinctly because it was raining. And my father was basically, let's go, not going to play. Okay, Dad, come on, 15 minutes, we're here. No, 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 no. And we basically dragged him out to the point where they finally took the tarp off and started. And we were able to be there to see Earl Wilson throw a no-hitter at Fenway Park. I'm, assur- I'm assuming that's the only one you've ever seen in person? Only one I've ever seen in person. I can't even remember seeing ones in the minor leagues, to go back, to be honest. Yeah, that's a dream of mine, to see one of those one of these days. Um, so you grew up and you went to high school in Linfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Red Sox fan, I'm assuming. Who was your favorite player, and who did you try to mimic as a pitcher growing up? Favorite player back then, since he lived in our town. A lot of the actually athletes lived in Linfield. Um, Yastrzemski lived there. Oh. And he was basically... A, uh, you know, with the batting stance and everything and being left-handed, I tried to replicate it to my detriment because I wound the bat around my head and couldn't hit an inside pitch to save my life. <laughs> um, for pitchers, um, I actually got to one year my <laughs> go to Florida for a whole month in spring training, and it was um, in Clearwater, and I got to go to Jack Russell Stadium and watch the Phillies every other day, and I became totally enamored with Jim Bunning. Okay. Particularly his motion falling off the, you know, I didn't couldn't replicate a right hander falling off being a lefty, but Bunning was really just interesting to watch since that was at the peak of his career. Now you got a degree in economics from Princeton. You pitched there from '75 to '77. You later became the first Ivy Leaguer to make the big leagues in 25 years. Your favorite memories of pitching at Princeton? Uh, the fact that you started every season with frost on the ground. Yeah. And you're pitching in 35-degree weather. There are no leaves on the trees. 
but there was a hidden advantage to that that I discovered early. The Jadwin Gym, where the basketball team plays in the background, had a gray roof, and the sun would shine off the roof slightly, and if you're left-handed, the ball would come out of the really bad background. So if you were tall like me and threw a little more over the top, uh, they couldn't see the ball. So it would really help my career. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, right? Uh, the San Francisco Giants select you then in the 12th round of the 77 June Amateur Draft. Your favorite memories of draft day, where were you at? And then also, was San Francisco the team that you expected to take you? Um, I was, I'd gotten phone calls from the Indians and the Mariners that I was interested in playing. I think part of it is they think someone from the Ivy League is going to say goodbye and go off to a bank training program. Right. I wanted to play 100%. So I got drafted the day I graduated from college. So I had the graduation ceremonies in the morning, got the phone call, and met uh, the scout for the Giants, Dutch Deutsch, at the Port Authority. I uh, signed my contract there in a coffee shop, literally for a cup of coffee because I was burned out, and uh, went home, dropped my stuff off, and then flew out to Arizona. Wow. Now, you, that first summer, you're between Great Falls of the Pioneer League and Cedar Rapids of the Midwest League. So that first summer away from home, your favorite memories? I think. Um, it was interesting being in Cedar Rapids because the manager of the team, Jack Mull, had managed my brother in the minor leagues with the Cubs. So he had a preconceived notion that I would be kind of like, you know, throwing as hard and, frankly, quite as uh, crazy and not Al Roboski-like, but a little more open <laughs> than I was. I was more reserved and more controlled in my pitching style, more Greg Maddox than Roboski. So it was interesting dealing with Jack and uh, basically seeing how he dealt with me. And I, I caught up with him. I went by to see my daughter once in college. He was about 10 miles away in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, so I went to see Jack, and we had a good visit. Oh, that's cool. How about the were the lights in the Pioneer League as bad as everyone says they are even today? Yes, and the ballparks were a little unusual. Uh, the first place I we played ball was in Lethbridge, and it was the Dodgers team. And the ballpark was a rather high fence but rather short. Uh, they regularly had games that were like 22 to 18 <laughs> and things of that nature. And my first game I gave up. Six runs in the third inning. So after one game in the major leagues, I'm 0-1 with an eight. I'm the professional ball 0-1 with an 18 ERA. <laughs> nice. Can only get better. Yeah, no doubt from there. It's amazing how many of these like Pioneer League and Midwest League towns just you know the fields turn into Legion ball fields. It's kind of almost sad that they just go away after a while. Yeah, there was a big change in the early 90s where fields had to come up to a certain code and particularly New York, New York Penn League, yep. it was really terrible because a lot of towns lost their team because they wouldn't uh, locally, shall we say, by taxes raise the money to do so. Um, seeing Pat O'Connor, the minor league uh, president CEO, was speaking at NYU on Friday, I'm going to see, and I want to ask him about whether that really took some of the community out of, uh, out of baseball and made minor leagues more ink than actually a not-for-profit. Now, one, speaking of which, by the way, kind of on the same topic, uh, I don't know if you've ever, you ever – you probably pitched in Clinton, Iowa, didn't you, on, as yes, a visitor? Now, there's a book out right now because they keep thinking they're going to lose that team because the town keeps losing population. It's the whole factory town there on the river. But there's a great book that came out last year called Class A in the Middle of Everywhere. Did you ever read that? No, but I heard about it. Ah, oh, great book. If you, if you ever get a minute, you know, it sounds like you're pretty busy. I'd recommend that one. Definitely. I mean, it's most of the minor league books and things that talk about, shall we say, mid-'90s and all the way back. They're, 
there was really almost no change from the days that Branch Rickey put the minor league system together when he was in the Cardinal organization, but it, you know, it changed. And I have to tell you, Rosenblatt Stadium was wonderful. Love I do it. not like the new place, period. End really? Of discussion. End of discussion. No, really? It's great. It's wonderful. It's downtown. Rosenblatt Stadium had a certain something. The new ballpark looks like you could be dropped into a, you know, junior version of a major league ballpark. It's supposed to be minor league. It's supposed to be close. You're not as close. You're separate. And that, it doesn't do it for me for what I think minor league baseball should be. I love Rosenblatt. I grew up going to games there, so I'm glad to hear that. I actually have chairs in this room from the yellow chairs from Rosenblatt in this room <laughs> that I bought oh. from the zoo there. So now, Part of your scavenger hunt. I like it. Yes. Now, you mentioned we just talked about towns that have kind of gone away in minor leagues. 78, one of those, Waterbury. You were there for a while and also Phoenix. And then 79, you were at Shreveport. Now, one of the guys I see that you pitched with there was future Royal Al Hargesheimer. Did you get to know him pretty well? I knew Al very well. Al was actually an undrafted player who came in, along with actually Peter Borges' dad, Chris. There was a guy in the tryouts in the Chicago area, and they both got to uh, play in the major leagues despite being undrafted. Al was a wonderful guy. I got to play with him there and also in Phoenix for, the, for parts of uh, two years there. Very cool. Now, 1980 and 81, you're a Triple A Phoenix. Now, I've got to ask you another thing from JewishWeek.com that I read. So, your minor league teammate, closer Gene Pence, once asked you during a game in '81 in Tucson if you'd accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You told him no. I'm in the process of converting to Judaism, so no, I don't. And he told you you're going to hell. Now, which is maybe a funny story now, but I'm guessing it wasn't at the time. Um. Well, the end of it was he said that, and then to turn back watching the game as a. Um, <laughs> statement of fact so i said okay so i was angry called my wife to be who said well if he was really interested in saving your soul he would have done something about it as opposed to sending you to eternal damnation um for actually that was one of the only negative reactions despite the fact they were more evangelical in nature people like gary lavelle and dan quisenberry were openly accepting even though i didn't go out as publicly with it of the process and Judaism. It was not an issue with anyone I dealt with. Huh. Did you ever talk to, the, to him again? I saw he made the Tigers and Astros. I mean, I'm assuming no. Or who's that? Who, Gene? Did you ever talk to him again after that, really, or not? No, didn't talk to Gene again after that point. And I, the funny part was that he was the closer at that point. I was a long reliever. And lo and behold, Gene does poorly. I get his job, I get hot, the strike ends, and I go to the major league. So God does have a sense of humor after all. <laughs> That's great. Now, obviously, as you mentioned, the most memorable part of 81 was August 10th. You'd make your big league debut after leading the team, or actually leading the league in ERA for Phoenix at 1.70. But before we talk about that, take us back to that moment you first found out you were going to the big leagues. Where were you at? Did you get a cool story from a manager, I'm assuming? How'd that happen? I was actually in my apartment. My wife was working, actually clerking in the uh, Southern District of New York as part of her uh, in-between years law school job. We had talked on the phone for about 15 minutes, hung up, and the phone rang again. And it was my manager, Rocky Bridges, and goes, "Why don't you get off the damn phone? You know, what, what, what's up, Rocky? You know, get yourself packed. You're going to San Francisco." So I basically put myself together packed up everything, returned phones and deposits, and got in the car and drove as fast as I could up to Candlestick Park. <laughs> That's great. Now, like we said, August 10th, your big league debut. Unfortunately, ended up in a blown save, although you didn't give up an, an earned run there. I don't know exactly what happened there. but So a, a trivia question I like to ask guys. Your first strikeout was that night. I'm, I'm assuming you can remember who it is? 
I believe it was uh, Cruz. Yep, Jose Cruz. Yep, nailed it. How about a, another one? You had one big league at bat on August 26th of 81. Who was the pitcher and what happened? Psych, yep. And I grounded out to shortstop. Wow. Wow. Good memory. <laughs> hey, hey, you only get one of them. You better remember it. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, think I didn't strike out, please. That was the most important thing. Yeah. Put the ball in play. Gave yourself a chance. Gave yourself that 275 chance, right? <laughs> Ish. Eddie, he, he, he threw me a change up. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, so before, you know, we'll talk about you coming over to KC, but for those who never saw you pitch or those who have forgotten, uh, describe what you threw, where you sat and topped out at, how you pitched, all that good stuff. I threw a lot of garbage. <laughs> if you can remember Roger McDowell pitching for the Mets, I didn't throw as low, but I was a left-handed version of what Roger McDowell threw, like sinker slider. I threw in the 90s in high school over the top and had no idea where the ball was going, which in high school helps you. Right. When you get to a higher level, people don't hit that stuff. So I started dropping my arm down and throwing from an angle and actually throwing sinker slider with control. So down and in, down and away. And that became successful for me, as a, uh, particularly as a starting pitcher, because the more tired I got, the more the ball sank, and the more people just hit the ball on the ground. Um, it became beneficial to me the year I pitched in Waterbury. Our team was terrible. We were 28 and 42 at the halfway point, but I was 11 and three with, I think, 12 complete games at that point. Huh. And one of the I said, "Why do you guys play so well behind me?" And he goes, "Well, you know, you throw strikes, the ball may be hit. We're ready. We don't lament walks." And he said, "And besides, there's a hidden benefit. Whenever you pitch, the game's over within two and a half hours. I can schedule a date at 11 o'clock that night." <laughs> Never underestimate the power of getting a date. <laughs> right, no doubt. Uh, so 1982, the blockbuster trade happens on March 30th. The Royals get you and Vita Blue for Craig Chamberlain, Atlee Hamaker, uh, Rini Martin, and Brad Wellman. So when you got that news, where were you at, and, and how were your emotions at that point? I got pulled off the field. I hadn't pitched in about a week, and I was wondering what was going on. I assumed I was going to be sent back to Phoenix. And I'm talking, actually, to Jim Wolford. Ex-Royal yep. in the outfield, yep. and they yell for me, and they go, that's a weird way to get sent down. He goes, I don't think you're getting sent down. So I go in, and Tom Howard and Frag Robinson tell me I'm getting traded to the Royals. I get my phone number, I get my information, and I fly off to what I think is going to be going to Fort Myers, but instead I go to the minor league camp in Sarasota, which is the baseball academy one in the middle of godforsaken area and i'm going what the hell am i into now <laughs> so i mean were you excited at that point kind of just numb or i mean what were the emotions like pretty numb because at that point um i talked to the giants before and they said you will be with the club next year you're going to be long reliever and you know patchwork whatever you know line up don't worry about anything and my wife graduating law school is all of a sudden filling out the bar application for California to go work for a firm in San Francisco. And we had made comments, gee, as long as we're not, you know, end up in St. Louis or Kansas City, we can deal with either coast, and it becomes Kansas City. (laughs) A little bit of serendipitous stuff there, right? Indeed. Yeah. So I read an interview you did on Royals Review. Um, So you said that you got to spring training with KC, and then almost right away, Royals minor league director Dick Balderson tells players that getting married could ruin your career, and it ruined a prospect. And you were engaged at that time. Tell that story. Yes. I mean, we had these meetings on a random basis, and Dick got up and talked about um, 
basically commitment to the game. And he was talking about a player who got married. He spent too much time worrying about his wife and his performance suffered. He didn't say don't get married, but the underlying bold message is don't get married. And it kind of made me go back to the 50s and 60s where they wanted players drunk and stupid and fooling around so they got in trouble so clubs could have leverage over them. And, basically be, shall we say, more antisocial, which I think probably hurts their career more than anything else. So I went, what am I, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere, and now I got this thing, boy. And, you know, they want guys to throw hard in the Royal Organization. I don't throw hard anymore. I throw only high 80 sinker slider. Uh, did they really research me before they decided to trade for me? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, you made it through law school, man. I mean, I've dated some girls first year of law school. If you can make it through that first year of law school, you can conquer anything, right? After the first year, all the hard stuff was done, yeah. and we and move on. So, yeah. you know, she went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville, so that was an entertaining thing. There were at least a few minor league and major league ball players around. Ricky Horton was had just graduated from UVA at the time. Mike Cubbage lived in the area, and the late Jim Bibby was also around, and Jim would come by, too. Yeah. Well, your initial thoughts on your new teammates then at the complex there in Sarasota was I mean, did you kinda did you know anybody and did you kinda latch on to anybody at first? I knew like four or five guys that I had played against and about three or four I had played with. Phil Huffman, Dennis Littlejohn, I had played with in the Giants organization. The rest of them were totally alien to me. Yeah. Um, I I mean I I hadn't played against the Royals at any stop, so it was only guys that had been traded or were fill-ins at that point that I actually had knowledge of. So it took me a while to figure out Ron Johnson. Ron was a uh, very happy-go-lucky Fresno State guy. We got to be good friends at, at the end of time. And now, uh, what, a minor league manager for the Red Sox still, I believe? You know, he's with the Orioles, I believe, in Rochester. Orioles, okay. That's, that's who it is. That's who it is. And when then, he was first base coach with the Red Sox, my daughter was interning with that summer. So they got to talk, which was really kind of fun. Oh, cool. Ron Johnson, not to be confused with Ron Din Johnson. Remember him? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you begin 82 then in Omaha, and you get recalled to KC after just four days on April 9th. However, you were there for just eight days, and they sent you back down to Omaha April 17th. So what made them call you up in the first place that year, and how come you went back without an appearance? Um. I, we finished the minor league spring training, and I was told I'm going up to the Royals because Scott Brown had been sent down. He had to wait a week to clear waivers to get called back up. And so I was there. They told me why. And then when all of a sudden we're in Cleveland, and basically, okay, we're sending you back down. You've got to meet the, uh, the Omaha team in Oklahoma City. So I ended up basically packing and going. Uh, I was going to be smart-ass and tell Dick Hauser and Cloyd Boyer, you know, I haven't given up an earned run. How dare you send me down? <laughs> then again, I hadn't pitched in a game, so what the heck. <laughs> so I basically went back down, hadn't, hadn't pitched in about, I think, 10 days, and threw two and a third in relief and got all seven guys out for my first save. So fortunately, I didn't miss a beat. Scott Brown, he never appeared in a game either for the Royals. I don't think Scott pitched for the Royals after that point. He was in the minors in Omaha the next season, I believe, but I yeah. didn't miss most of that season. I'll go back and check. Man, I never even realized he was up there in the first place. Um, so you spent that entire summer in Omaha, like you said. You came back to KC in September. Now for Omaha, you were an American Association All-Star. You were Fireman of the Year, 10-6, 12 saves, only 74 hits in 94-plus. So your favorite memories of pitching in Omaha that first year overall? Uh, 
end of the season, we were in a pennant race to go play the Reds AAA in Indianapolis. And the end, we actually we won a bunch of games in bizarre fashion and held on and got in. And it was kind of like, you know, were there any real stars on the team? No. I almost compare it. I mean, there are more stars on the current Royal team <laughs> than we had on ours. But it was a kind of a bizarre group of people from, you know, pitching staff. We weren't exactly strong. You know, Buddy Biancana was playing short. Um, was there anyone else who was really, you know, no, there wasn't anyone who had a long major league career. Buddies was the longest out of the entire bunch. Frank Wills did pitch, but you know it was a rather ragtag group, and we actually won. It was kind of fun for that because it wasn't this number one draft pick superstar out there that everyone knew was going to be a great major league ball player. Now you said you loved Rosenblatt Stadium. How about the city of Omaha? I loved being there. I mean, it was really you know I was. Not exactly a flyover guy growing up. I grew up in New England, went to school at Princeton, so I hadn't really gotten out into the Midwest. I had a great time there. I, I really loved the people. I loved Omaha. I loved Kansas City just because no one bothered you. No one acted crazy. No one acted New York-like where they'd basically totally ignore you whether it's because they were more important than you or they'd come up and go crazy and you know have 27 pictures of you they wanted to decide. Everyone was just nice nice and neat and the you know, you know, the bias, the prejudice is a positive one. Everyone just treated you really well. How'd you like uh, playing for Omaha manager Joe Sparks? Joe was interesting because Joe got me up every game to get ready to relieve. Probably why my arm, <laughs> it started earlier when I threw too many complete games with the Giants, but probably part of the reason my arm eventually ended up having to have shoulder surgery uh, back about 15 years ago. Get up, get out there, get the job done. I mean, you know, forget throwing one, you know, Royals with three guys throwing in a row. I was throwing all three of those innings. <laughs> old school mentality, I guess, right? Very old school back then. It was, okay, who do you want to throw in? Here, let's go. <laughs> now, that September, that call to Casey, I mean, was that no surprise at that point? I mean, were you just expecting that? I was expecting a lot earlier, but ironically, I didn't give up an earned run my first month of the season. But they kept calling up right-handers because the Royals' starting rotation due to injuries was all lefties. For I think they went through four cycles of starters. It was all lefties. It was Splitorf, Blue, Gora, um, Don Hood. I yeah. think all went through cycle at that point. There was no need for another left-handed reliever, thank you very much. So even though I'm basically by the midpoint of the season with a .9 ERA, I wasn't going to get called up until the end because there was no need. Uh, yeah, wow. Rather frustrating, but... Yeah, he's going to pick a point to do well, and basically with the Giants, you know, you've got Gary Lavelle and Al Holland, and all of a sudden, how are you going to get up as a left-handed reliever? Answer is you're not. Yeah, man. Well, some cool things happened to you that September in KC. You got your first big league win September 12th, and an 18 to seven win against the Twins. You worked two innings. That first win, do you remember that pretty well? Very well. It's I pick on Tim Kirchner a lot for that because Tim talked about the opposing pitcher that day. Uh, it was Terry Felton. Who, the Twins tried to get him a major league win because he had gone 0-15 in his career at that point. <laughs> and <laughs> come back, and it's a 7-1 to game. When I came in, we went 18-7. to <laughs> So Felton got the loss, and that was his last major league decision. So he went 0-16 for his career. So he lost his last game when I got my first major league win. <laughs> wow. Your first big league save, 3-3rd of one-hit ball against Seattle, that one sticks out, I'm assuming? 
because I almost blew that game. I came in to relieve. It was the patchwork uh, Royals pitching at that point. Bill Castro had filled yeah. in and started the game. I came in with a runner on first, gave up a single to center, and then a walk. So it was one out. Oh, great. And fortunately, got a double play ball, got out of the inning, and then basically three clean innings after that. And that was a... Uh, a fun moment because it turns out my mother and father had shown up to actually see me pitch. They had flown out to San Francisco once and I didn't pitch. They actually got there in time and got to see me uh, get the save. Oh, is that one of the few times I saw you in the major leagues? Um, that was the only time I think. Yeah, that was the only time they saw me pitch in the major Oh, cool. What a special day. That's cool. Um, so after that first season in KC, so going into the 1983 season, that winter, you know, w- w- you know what were you thinking and what have they told you at the end of that season? No, nothing spoken. It's just that I had done a good job, and considering the the team and the way things were constructed, I would basically be once again long man out of the bullpen. You had Dan Quisenberry, you had Mike Armstrong. You know, we're basically you know let's construct and go from there. And I look forward to it, but unfortunately, I have a high pain threshold and didn't realize that over time. I had basically shredded my shoulder. I eventually had surgery for a torn labrum, torn rotator, and a torn capsule. I just didn't know it at the time. Wow. Well, you made your first big league opening day roster in 83. You got in the second game of the season at Baltimore, and you made six appearances for KC, and then they sent you back to Omaha. So that first month of 83, I'm sure it was frustrating at the end of it. You know, what sticks out? Were you just in a lot of pain at that point? actually in pain. It's basically something's not working. What's going on here? And I did not know. I basically, you know, gee, maybe I need more work to get the ball to sink. Maybe it's just, you know, I can't get a grip on the ball. It's too cold. You know, I just, I went out early, worked out with Cloyd Boyer, tried to do some extra work, but it just didn't turn around. Yeah. Well, a month in Omaha, then you got traded June 7th of 83 for a key member of the Royals, you know, you know, Charlie Liebrand, who ended up being. So, you know, your emotions at that point, where were you at when you found out about the trade and what were your thoughts on that? We were in Louisville. I was sitting with Ron Johnson having lunch and Joe Sparks came by and said he'd been traded for Charlie Liebrand. I think we could have gotten a little more, but, you know, <laughs> and went off and we talked a little. I packed I actually flew off again to Oklahoma City of all places. Seems <laughs> where I go whenever the Royals do a transaction and join the um, the Reds AAA team from Indianapolis. Um, so I basically look at it, let me be nice to Kansas City, that the Vital Blue trade wasn't a disaster if it got Charlie Lee Brent and two <laughs> playoff series out of it. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. How'd you like uh, Indianapolis that year? Uh, I didn't, even though we had a lot better team. Um, We had people like Eric Davis came up to the club shortly after I joined. Johnny Franco, Greg Harris, Jeff Russell were all there. We had some interesting uh, building blocks in that piece, but we were the worst team in the league. And the ballpark, I don't know if you've watched the Eight Men Out movie. Yeah. The ballpark they used was that ballpark. Oh, okay. And... um, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, it became condos, actually. Victory Field got beat as part of their economic, uh, built as part of the economic development. But it was real old-school ballpark and had flavor, had something, had a little bit of pizzazz, but it was, I knew that something was gone and my career would be over, so I started planning for the next, uh, the next chapter of my life. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So you're just 27 years old, and you never pitched again after that year. Now... 
some of the stuff I've read too, and, and kind of pieced together the last couple of years, is that you were, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of unjustly, essentially blackballed. Maybe a strong word, but I don't know from, from baseball because of that '83 Royals and Invita Blue drug scandal. So is calling you blackball a fair term? And, and can you talk about that a little bit? I would say yes. Even though my abilities in that year, you can make an honest adjustment for you know, gee, you know, you you stunk. But left-handed pitchers are who actually put up sub two ERAs and hitters leagues uh, should at least be given a look. Um, I was told by a Royals official that Willie Wilson passed along his apologies to me because I got put together in this. And a federal judge told me my name came up during some of the wiretap conversations. So you can make a guilty to prove an innocent argument, which is rather distasteful since I played with these guys in the Giants and the Royals. My bad season may have been due to the fact that someone can make the incorrect assumption that I was taking cocaine or some other drugs. And it's affected me to this day, particularly regarding my approach to civil liberties and what I think a player's association should do on behalf of players. Really? That's... So they just thought because you had a bad month that you must have been on drugs. I mean, is that where it came from and the fact that you came over with Vita? That's what I was told. Wow. And, you know, it is secondhand, yes, but the baseball works in mysterious ways. Now, I've read that you also even potentially lost jobs in your Wall Street career because of that false rumor as well. Is that true? I was at a Lehman Brothers uh, job interview with other people, and we were coming back with the, one of the hiring par- partners. And just before they got out and the car went up to where it dropped me off, one of the people said, yeah, he played baseball. Isn't that great? He played with all these guys that did drugs. Jeez. Huh. Didn't get an offer from there. Interviewed with uh, J.P. Morgan, and the person I interviewed with started screaming about how all these players who violate the law should basically have their lives taken away from them for uh, drugs. I wonder where he was with the Wall Street debacle and what all these people yeah. did. So I, 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 I tend to think basically real life is more important than basically, you know, the think of the children atmosphere about how dare a player do something that's uh, illicit. Right, man. Well, now, one other story you and I were talking about off the air was that, you know, the, the famous John Sherholst letter. Now, he wrote you a nice letter when you left the Royals, and you, you kind of were frustrated at the time, kind of crumpled it, kept it, though. You stashed it away. So talk about what that letter said. Yeah, after I got traded to the uh, the Reds, John sent a letter to me, and it was based on how he enjoyed, you know, having me around. Things didn't work out. He hopes things go well for me. And needless to say, I didn't pay too much attention to the content because I had a pretty strong feeling I'd never be in the major leagues again. So I actually physically crumpled the letter up and threw it aside. And when I was searching through some files back about two years ago, I actually found it. And I said, this is kind of neat. And I flattened it out, and I sent it to John. And basically, you know, like an apology. You know, I got this, I crumpled it, I wasn't in a good mood at the time or a place. However, you know, I found this, and I want to thank you 30 years later. And I told him my daughter was actually working in baseball area, interning in communication with the Red Sox, then off to working with the Phillies. And he wrote back a one-line response, you know, two lines. Got your letter. May she have a longer career than you did. So <laughs> thank you, John, if you hear this. You're a good guy. I 
love it. I love it. Well, we're, we're hoping we don't lose our second GM to Atlanta, by the way, right now with Dayton, you know. <laughs> so hopefully that won't happen. Uh, Just don't lose a game, that's all. Yeah, that's right? All yeah, yeah, yeah. So your favorite teammates while with the Royals organization, and, and do you keep in touch with any of your old uh, Omaha or KC teammates? Uh, being on the East Coast, very few of the people. Through the Major League alumni and some of the golf tournaments and things, I did get to catch up with George Brett a few years ago. Um, Jim Schaefer, the bullpen coach, used to do some of the golf tournaments. Um, who else did I catch up with? The Giants did a Willie McCovey ceremony. I caught up with Jim Wolford out there. I've been emailing back and forth with Bill Lasky, who got traded to the from the Royals organization as the Giants. Um, but really, no few and far between. There are a lot of local guys I catch up with here that we do clinics with the alumni, but <clears throat> none of the Royals guys and the Giants guys. They're all smart enough to either be in Kansas City, San Francisco, Florida, or Arizona enjoying a better climate than New York. <laughs> For sure. Have you been back to uh, Kansas City since 83 at all? I've been back twice. I came back for the Dick Hauser Memorial Day. I did some business in town and then went to the uh, went to actually two games in a row, back-to-back. And I was in seeing people from the, uh, where the U.S. Olympic Committee people, um, when the NCAA moved out, they come by just to look at the ballpark to go down in the field. And that was in 97, I guess it was. It was kind of fun to go but go by and basically look at it. It hadn't had the drastic change then. It was almost exactly yeah. as it was from 15 years before. Uh, you'll have to check it out now. Has your daughter seen it yet? No, she hasn't been out. She hasn't gone on the trip. She's been basically based out of the home office for the team she works for. Oh, great. Well, someday you'll have to get everybody back out here. Now, last two questions for you. Overall, your, your favorite memories of Kansas City. I know you weren't here real long, but you know what sticks out in your mind when you think of it, both on the field and off the field as well? Off the field, going to Country Club Plaza yep. every night afterwards. Uh, back then, it was the belated Harry Starkers for his uh, food. Uh-huh. Going to lunch at Nabil's, which is no longer around, mm-hmm. where... Usually Bud Black, George Brett, Jamie Quirk, and uh, Dennis Worth would always be there so we could hang out together. Um, on the field, I think a specific moment or memory, um, it was just the fact that, for me, growing up and watching the Royals-Giants series when I was in college, you know, these were the guys who were basically going back and forth with Billy Martin's Yankees. That was kind of a cool thing to me, saying, wait a minute, you know, I just turned the TV off and all of a sudden you know, closed my eyes for a while, and here I am in front of all these guys watching Dennis Leonard pitch, watching Brett, Amos Otis, Wilson, the whole group. And it was really fun. Now, what about this? <laughs> this is a loaded question. You may plead the fifth. Giants-Royals World Series 2014, if it happens, are you going to be pulling for one team over the other? I've been asked this by about... 10 or 15 people already. Yeah. And my answer is seven games, game seven goes extra innings, and the Royals win because of the 29-year gap. <laughs> okay, touche. Fair enough. I, I'm going to San Francisco in December for a hematology conference. It may cause some friction, but I don't care. <laughs> well, we love it here in town. Well, last thing for you, in summary, what would you like to say to, to all the Royals fans listening? Enjoy what you have in front of you. Just moment. Like players, things come and go. You have no idea why they happen, why things organize the way they do. Just cherish 
the team playing well in front of you right now and cherish every bit of baseball because every game in and of itself has value far superior to other sports. And it's not, shall we say, a learning experience or think of the children experience. It's something to basically share. Share it as a community, share it with your family, and basically pass baseball on to the next generation because it still is the best sport out there. Look forward to uh, you know staying in touch and thanks for all that you gave the Royals and and have a you know fun with your courses and everything. I will. You got my emails. You got my stuff. So anything, let me know. You as well. Take care. Bye, dear.